Today on Ag News Daily. Promote advocacy and economic infrastructure throughout the Midwest and throughout the domestic market for not only farming, but the production, manufacturing, and retail of hemp throughout. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another Ag News Daily podcast here on this Thursday afternoon. Delaney Howell joined by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Mike, did you have a good taping today of this week in agribusness? I did. I'm Max Armstrong, and I discussed things that are happening in the world of agriculture, and he reminded me that he is getting ready to head down to San Antonio, Delaney, yes. for the uh, Cattlemen's Convention. When are you taking off? I am actually heading to Albany, New York first. How exciting to go to upstate New York in the middle of winter, but I'm going to the Northeast Ag and Feed Alliance Annual Convention, working with those folks, and then head into hopefully much warmer San Antonio after that. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Greg Solier, our weather guru on uh, This Week in Agribus. He says you could have some uh, thunderstorms as you're heading down to uh, San Antonio next week. Well, as long as it's warm, I'm fine with the thunderstorms. Well, as long as you can get to San Antonio, you don't end up stuck in Albany in a uh, snowstorm. That I don't even want to talk about that. No, nah, nobody does. But what do you want to talk about, Delaney? What is happening in the world that we need to discuss? Well, one of the things I think that we need to talk about is still the coronavirus outbreak. We saw Secretary Perdue mention to reporters this week that this outbreak with the coronavirus raises some serious concerns about whether or not China can meet that $80 billion mark in agricultural purchases here over the next two years. Because as I mentioned yesterday on the podcast, if we see this thing really not getting a grip on by March we'll see China's economy really start to slow down we won't see them needing to buy as much agricultural product we won't see them spending as much of that hard-earned coin and so it's a little bit concerning for this phase one trade deal which as of yet we really haven't seen much follow-through on Right. You know, it is interesting. We're seeing this thing uh, really impact, well, markets in different ways every day. You know, initially it was just a fear-based sell everything. It's kind of everybody was, ah, it's the plague has returned. Now we're, we're starting uh, traders look at things with a little bit more uh, specificity. Oh, boy, that came out. I'm that was a big word for you. Word out as I expected. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's a pleasant surprise. But we did have some uh, some report out of Brazil, that both JBS and BRF, the uh, second largest Brazilian meatpacker, both announced today that they expect that this coronavirus could help boost Chinese demand for Brazilian beef. Um, they think this is possibly because residents in China are now going to be more concerned with food security. And anytime we have an outbreak of uh, disease in China, that country has so little faith in their own mm-hmm food production practices, they have a tendency to flock towards uh, food from other countries. They, they just recognize that both American and Brazilian meat in particular is historically prof- you know, fed to a, a greater standard of safety than Chinese meat. And anytime we get this fear, they're going to uh, rush over to those markets. So Brazil is expected to be the big winner on the meat side of this coronavirus outbreak. It's just so ironic to me. Maybe ironic is not the right word, but It's just so surprising that being a communist government, you'd think they'd have, you know, sanitary measures in place or a way to ensure that their food supply is safe since they've got so much government intervention, so much of a hand on what those people are doing. But really, they don't. Right. Well, you know, who would know? 
you know, they're, right. they're just going to say whatever, and I think they're a little concerned about what could be happening on the ground. Yeah, very true, Mike, very true. Well, talking about the protein industry, we saw kind of a big deal happen today for the beef checkoff program. We saw RCAF and I believe the U.S. Cattlemen's Association filed a joint lawsuit because of some concerns over the use of checkoff funds, which of course come from cattle producers, but also a big chunk of that money comes from the USDA and government agencies to fund research and advocacy, etc. for the cattle industry. Well, we saw that a magistrate is recommending the federal courts issue a summary judgment against the lawsuit filed. Basically, that means, Mike... The lawsuit that RCAF filed doesn't sound like it's going to go anywhere anytime soon uh, because this recommendation hinges on a memorandum of understanding that the USDA previously reached with different state beef councils to strengthen federal oversight. At the end of the day, it sounds like RCAF is not going to be able to move forward on this lawsuit. It sounds like because the NCBA and USDA have worked to you know, create some some better ties there, uh, it sounds like this lawsuit will not move forward. Interesting. Okay, so they're saying because they've already done all this stuff, yes. that negates whatever they were suing for. Yep. Oh, all right. Well, we've got some, uh, some other improvements happening, and this is coming out of Corteva. They have accelerated their biotech soybean seed rollout. Um, they said earlier today that they are accelerating this next generation of biotech seeds and you know the other herbicides that go along with it over the next five years. Really, what we're looking at here is basically an arms race between Bayer and uh, BASF and Corteva. Uh, 20% of U.S. beans could be planted with Corteva's Enlist uh, beans, which, of course, you know, I think our listeners are well aware, you know, they are designed to withstand three different herbicides. And uh, that's up from over 10%, which was last year's uh, planting. So, I mean, almost double or over double of uh, acreages going to Corteva crops in 2020. And then they think that uh, in 2021, they are going to, Corteva, I should say, is going to start buying fewer and fewer bear-based genetic traits in their seed line. They are really kind of, uh, what do I want to say, building their own science base to stand on rather than uh, bring it over from Bayer, which it had to purchase out in the market. Okay. And you think it's 2021 is their timeline? Well, they're ramping up this year, 2021. We should see a lot more Corteva-based gotcha. uh, biotraits coming onto the market. Yep. Okay. Well, hopefully something that doesn't take until 2021 to happen is the ratification of the Canadian version of the USMCA. And it appears that it shouldn't take that long. We saw the lower house of Canada's parliament voted last night in a landslide vote, 290 to 28, to allow the introduction of Canada's implementing bill. So it's only really one step of the ratification process. And I reached out to a couple of our Canadian friends, Matthew Pott and Philip Shaw, to get some insight from them on, okay, well, what does that look like from the Canadian side to get things ratified? And so I will try and share an update on that tomorrow, but we are moving right along. All right. Well, we'll have to see what happens now that the rubber is meeting the road and we're getting that NAFTA 2.0 underway. Absolutely. Uh, Delaney, I'm going to be honest. I'm all out of news. Do you have any other stories before we uh, touch on the markets? 
I have just one other thing to mention here because we've got quite a few dairy producers that do listen to the podcast. And USMCA was definitely a win for those folks, but they're saying it was not quite enough of a win. We saw milk producers and dairy processors turn to Congress to and put some pressure on them really to move a pair of bills that could help address labeling challenges that they're facing. We saw one of those called the Dairy Pride Act, which would make it illegal to label any plant-based products with dairy terms. So almond milk, soy milk, all of those things would not be allowed to be called milk under the Dairy Pride Act. We also saw another bill called the Curd Act, C-U-R-D, like cheese curd, which would ensure that cheese, uh, it would ensure that cheese that isn't a processed product could continue to be called natural cheese. And so we're just seeing those happen right now at a subcommittee level in the House. So I think it's going to take a little while for those to make it to the full floor. But I thought it was interesting that they're at least trying to address the labeling issues that we see between those plant-based products and actual dairy products. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what ends up uh, actually happening as this thing gets through the, uh, you know, legislative process. Absolutely, Mike. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. Would you eat from a dirty plate? Then why are you asking your engines to run with fuel from a neglected on-farm diesel fuel storage tank? Fuel storage tanks are subjected to thermal cycling, humidity, and the introduction of moisture, even with a well-sealed unit. This causes sludge and acids to form in the tank, and even though equipped with a filter, many get past and take up residence in your equipment's fuel tank. They then attack the fuel system components of the engine, decreasing both reliability and performance, and leaving you with costly and untimely repairs. With every delivery of fuel to the farm, use a good sludge remover and biocide to eliminate contaminants, water, and bacteria. Introduce these products before filling so that they thoroughly mix. You will greatly extend the life of all filters, and your engines will thank you for it. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Well, Delaney, we don't have to wait too long to see what happened as the market price throughout the day. Should we take a look and see where things closed? Let's do it. All right, folks, let's jump in here. We did have, again, continued weakness in the grains. Today, we did see another step back, particularly in the soybean markets. In corn to start the day, March was down four and three quarter cents at 379 and a half. May also down four and three quarters, closing at 384 and three quarters. Soybeans, as I mentioned, big down day to day, double digits lower. The March contract dropped 16 and three quarters, closing at eight six and a quarter 
down 16 and a half, finishing at 8.90 and a half. Over in Chicago wheat, the March contract dropped one and three quarter cents, finishing at 5.60 and a half. May down two and three quarters, closing at 5.58 and a half. Looking over at livestock mixed trade in the cattle complex, April live cattle down two and a half cents, closing at 120.20. June up two and a half cents, wrapping at 112.02.50. Feeder cattle strength today. Um, the March contract up 6750 at 135.65. April feeders up a nickel, closing at 137.1250. Hogs rough day limit down across the board. The April, excuse me, February lean hog contract dropped three dollars, closing at 61.30. April also limit down three dollars lower to close at 65.82 half. And in dairy, we've got red on the screen in Class Three milk with the January contract down a penny at 17.05, and February down 31 cents, wrapping it up at 17.33. Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're talking to in today's interview? Well, Mike, I've got another interview. Actually, this one is again about the hemp industry, looking at more of the regulation and standards side that we've still got to see the government address with Chad Frey, the executive director of the Nebraska Hemp Industries Association. Well, hemp is definitely on discussion at the Iowa Power Farming Show, chatting with Chad Frey, who is the executive director of the Nebraska Industrial Hemp Association. Chad, tell me a little bit about the organization that you work for. What are you guys doing in the hemp space? You bet, Delaney. So what we're currently doing, we promote advocacy and economic infrastructure throughout the Midwest and throughout the domestic market for not only farming, but the production, manufacturing, and retail of hemp throughout multiple sectors. So there are a lot of moving pieces in the hemp space. A big one that you touched on today is regulation, where we're seeing things happen with the testing, with USDA, with moving between states. Give us kind of the update of where all of that sits right now. Absolutely. So the Updates come monthly on this end. What we've seen over the last year has been integration of USDA interim final rule, which actually was applied on October 31st of 2019. We saw the 2018 Farm Bill, which was applied in December of 2018. And throughout that, we've seen a swath of multiple other regulations, whether they're on state and local legislation or federal, to where and how farmers, processors, manufacturers can actually deal with this product and how to stay compliant. Um, not only the FDA, but USDA, regulatory compliance looks a little bit tricky when you have a product that is prescribed drug or is a manufactured food, and staying in between those lines is very difficult for everyone involved. Yeah, that raises a good point. There are just so many uses for hemp uh, from food, livestock feed, CBD, and then of course, if it gets over that, is it 0.3 or 0.5% THC, it becomes cannabis or a non-hemp product at 0.3 percent thc it becomes federally regarded as a marijuana product um, so when we see testing hot you either have at that 0.5 percent you have to destroy your crop as appointed by the usda um, but in between that it's very difficult for a farmer to maintain that as we've seen within the last two weeks uh, the American Farm Bureau actually rolled out that they believe it should be 1%. So that's our nation's largest American farming board rolling out their prospectus on how farmers should be applied and how applications should be for the cultivation of this plant. If it was changed to 0.1%, does that change things for the CBD industry? 
I'm sorry, I, I, I should clarify, I, I meant 1% on that side. So a higher limit because we are currently at 0.3%. That would allow people in transportation and manufacturing of this plant to be much more widely used because when we see the application of THC in terms of a psychoactive that gets you high, we're not seeing that until about a 5% application. Okay, gotcha. So there's been a big taboo about around that for a long time. Why do you think we just now, within the last couple of years, are starting to see hemp come back to the forefront for agriculture? That's a great question. I think a lot of it is due to the fact of our economy. I think it's due to our farmers and our agricultural state right now, how we are presented with different tariffs or subsidies or any type of federal give back program that really don't help our farmer. They just inhibit them from being able to get their freedom back and grow a product that will benefit their farm. I mean, we've seen 1,600 different bankruptcies in Wisconsin alone on dairy farms in the last two years. Uh, I think that number will put into perspective for a lot of people that our Midwestern community and our farming community are, are at a crossroads. And the one thing that I have heard about hemp production a lot is that it's going to be this silver bullet for agriculture. It's going to be this huge cash crop at some point in the future. And as you said, 328% increase from 18 to 19. So obviously people are producing this crop a lot more, but it doesn't sound like a silver bullet is the way we should be regarding it. That's exactly right. I don't think that there is any type of silver bullet that exists. And if there was, I think everyone would be doing it. Uh, I think that why we have seen a lot of farmers come into this, start cultivating this, is because they have been hurting and they want that silver bullet. Uh, But like anything else, you have to learn how to grow. You have to understand this plant. You have to get your hands dirty in the soil and really go through a routine and educate yourself, your community, and everyone around you. And that is where the real growth is. And I don't think there's anything wrong with the way our corn and soybean and wheat farmers do it. But I mean, you don't have to be, you don't have to have a big plan in place to have a profitable year when growing corn and soybeans and wheat. You don't have to do a lot of input to make sure that the crop is producing. But with hemp, you really do have to have, it seems like a very, uh, you know, calculated plan put in place to grow hemp. Absolutely. And I think that that's what's exciting, right? I think when we look at corn and soy, we don't have to have a plan because that plan has been in place for over 50 years. You know, we've seen growers and and generational growers come in and whether it's the utilization of technology or equipment, we know how to grow because we grew up growing, myself included. I know how to grow because I grew up growing and my father and his father taught him, but my father didn't teach me how to grow hemp. And that's why I'm really excited, because I get to teach people coming after me. So what are the big things that you're teaching folks when you're traveling around, giving seminars like you were today at the Iowa Power Farming Show? What do you what's the big takeaways that you want people to know about growing hemp? I think the big takeaways are doing your own due diligence and what this means to you, unlike what you're currently doing or what you can do. I think If you don't want to do it or you're not passionate about something, then you shouldn't be doing it in any regard, whether it's in working in technology or working in agriculture. Uh, That is the one thing that I really want to hammer home is that this is difficult. But being America, we know what difficult is. We've done the hard work. Let's get back to doing the work and laying the foundation for people for the future to do great things. 
When you look at the markets that are in place or developing right now for the end use of hemp, whether it's CBD or, um, you know, textiles, food, etc., do you see a lot of development happening in 2020? Absolutely. And we've seen a lot of development happen even since 2014 uh, when the pilot program was released. You know, what we saw over the last year in 2019 has been the inception of multiple associations, whether they're happening for federal or state legislation. Uh, We've seen the introduction of U.S. Hemp Builders Association, U.S. Hemp Growers Association. These are all things that are banning and bringing people together somewhat like the Farm Bureau and the Hemp, or excuse me, and the Farm Association, Farm Union. These are things that will allow us to really retroactively look into let's just say for home building or, or large scale commercial real estate building, what a certification looks like. A lot of people really don't know what the integration of having an R rating for different types of insulation looks like, or what a fiber board needs or what you need for having actual stud rating. Those are things that are certifications that need to happen. And those associations are the things that are going to push those through legislation. Are there any sort besides what I'm going to call, and it's not a commodity group, but it's similar to like what a commodity group is for corn growers or soybean is, is hemp associations, but are there other initiatives in place to help growers get their feet on the ground? Absolutely. Um, There are multiple public resources. We at the Nebraska Hemp Industries Association are a public forum and a member-based 501c6 nonprofit. So we want people to come to our site. We want people to reach out to us and get the information that they need. There is no dumb question. There is no question that will go unturned for us, and we're more than happy to help. Uh, You know, outside the association, there are resources online that you can look up. There are resources on uh, the FSA has, the USDA. You can go to your local state government. They will have a hemp background in in the Department of Agriculture for your state government. You can do hours of research on this and and really dig into the rabbit hole that there is. And and like I said, if you want to get down to the bottom of that rabbit hole fast, start with the association. And when I'm digging into that rabbit hole, what are the questions that I should be asking as a farmer interested in perhaps growing hemp on my operation? I would ask myself the first question, why I'm interested and what does this mean to my farm? Where do I want to start and why does this application help me? Why does it help the community? I don't recommend a farmer get into this to make money. There is money to be made, of course, but the application itself is to help the rural community and the surrounding community that has been affected by our recent setback on everything that we've gone through in ag communities. Uh, The further questions to ask are, where do I get my seeds? Where do I do my due diligence? How do I find that seed? How do I cultivate it? What type of watering schedule do I need? Is the soil NPK levels correct for what type of germination and cultivation that I'm growing. And on the back end, of course, where do I sell my product? You don't want to come into this without a product to have sold. You don't want to come into this without a buyer because people are not going to come knocking on your door asking to buy your product that's in your field. I don't think they do that with any product, really. (laughs) I don't think so either. So, Chad, last question for you. As you look at 2020, it's supposed to be a big year for hemp production. What do you see as the forecast? As the forecast, I see a lot of people coming back into this. I see a lot of people that have failed that will understand what failure is and learn from those failures. I think that's what makes people better is learning from the failures, even though they've failed. And that's really the foundation of this great country that we're in. And that's the foundation of the agricultural rural communities that I am part of. Well, Chad, thank you so much for joining. You bet. Thank you. 
again a big thank you there to Chad. He gave a really dynamic, interesting talk earlier this week at the Iowa Power Farming Show. But again, I think it's just so surprising to hear all these little pieces of the hemp industry that really have to be addressed before we see any sort of, and as he said, it's not going to be a silver bullet, but any sort of big commodity growth here in the hemp industry. Yeah, very interesting stuff. It will be fascinating to watch this market come to fruition here in the U.S. And listeners, you can keep up with us and all the other markets we've been following. Visit our website at agnewsdaily.com. Watch or, excuse me, listen to our previous episodes and follow us on the Internet, the social medias, the Twitters, the Facebooks, and the Instagram. We are on all three of those places. Just search for Ag News Daily and we shall appear. Delaney, with that, should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.